1: Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year round event. I'm Mike Hogan, Vanity Fair's digital director, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we're digesting two recent announcements from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the body that gives out the Oscars. In the first, the Academy announced a large batch of new voting members, 683 in all, with a heavy emphasis on women and people who aren't white. That's all part of Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaac's plan to double the number of women and minorities in the voting membership by 2020. The second announcement put some new rules around award season events, something that could seriously cramp the style of our former guest, Peggy Siegel. Here to discuss all that with us today is Rebecca Keegan, a staff writer covering film for the Los Angeles Times. The reporters at the L.A. Times cover the Academy announcements the way other papers cover presidential races. So we're excited to dig deep into these exciting developments with her. From there, we'll talk about the new HBO series The Night Of, which Richard has seen. And he's here to tell us whether it is indeed the great new drama that HBO Semi-desperately needs And whether it will play into the Emmy Awards In September And then we'll revisit the 2009 Best Actress race Where Sandra Bullock beat out Gabourey Sidibe Is it possible a more diverse voting membership Like the one we now have would have called that one differently We'll talk about that But before we get into any of that stuff An important announcement Katie Rich isn't with us today Because she gave birth yesterday To a new member of the Little Gold Men family A baby boy Named Charles McGugan Baltus. McGugan is my new favorite middle name.
2: It's great. I, I'm I'm a little bummed she didn't go with Oscar. <laughs> yeah, to be
1: honest and whether that could have been uh, named after the award or after her crush Oscar Isaac could well, have gone either exactly. way exactly it doubles, it doubles. <laughs> uh, we look forward to Charles' first Oscar qualifying credit playing Alicia Vikander's baby in some adaptation or others congratulations Katie and we'll see you in a few months yeah yeah she's got a, a
2: whole exciting summer ahead of her but unfortunately that means she won't be with us but we'll try to hobble along without her
1: and at some point I think we're gonna prank call her but not on day two yeah yeah Okay. Maybe
2: maybe day nine, maybe day nine. So
1: <laughs> a week from now. So, Rebecca, you are covering all of these exciting, interesting, provocative Academy announcements for the Los Angeles Times, and uh, this is a pretty big deal for you guys, right? You guys cover cover Academy announcements. In a heavy duty way. You you kind of flood the zone. Am I right about that?
0: (laughs) That, That's that's definitely true. I think at one point we had more reporters covering award season than we did sort of international conflicts. It's definitely (laughs) something that we treat super duper seriously. I mean, this is our hometown business.
1: Right. And so, first, you know, and I want to talk about the two announcements first one being the membership, and the second one being the partying. But what's your top line takeaway from this big batch of new voters in the academy, uh, 683 members that that is almost a 10 percent increase takes takes the full membership to almost 7000 people. What's your what's your initial reaction?
0: Well, the Academy did what it said it was going to do. I mean, in during award season, in the height of the controversy over the all-white acting nominees for the second year in a row, Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaacs said that they were going to double the number of women and minority members by the year 2020. To a lot of people, that was incredibly ambitious, myself included. I mean, I was just skeptical about whether the academy would follow through on that. It would mean inviting historically much larger classes and much more diverse classes than they ever have before. This first class is an indication that they are planning to follow through on it. I mean, 683 people is almost twice the number of the largest class they've ever invited. It was nearly half women. It was 41% people of color. It was 283 international invitees. That class looks dramatically different than anyone that's come before it.
1: And how does this work uh, on the mechanic side? How do the various branches actually decide who gets to be a new voting member?
0: Well, there are a lot of different things that go into it. I mean, the branches meet and they consider people who have put themselves forward, people who members have suggested. And this year what was interesting is different branches took very different approaches to this diversity mandate. If you look at the director's branch, they seem to have gone the furthest with it. They invited 94 directors, 54 of whom are women. That's a huge number when you consider what how small the percentage of movies directed by women is. So different branches interpreted differently.
1: And, and directors were one of the kind of big targets, weren't they? Hadn't directors previously been considered one of this kind of more regressive branches, or am I making that up?
0: No, you're absolutely right. Not only are they one of the more aggressive branches, they're one of the more powerful branches. After all, this is the branch that hires almost everybody else, right? right. Yeah. Um, And the directors currently in Hollywood, the EEOC, is investigating whether there's been gender bias in the hiring of directors. Four percent of studio movies are directed by women. That's very, very low. So for the director's branch to have gone so far out on this is really dramatic. And it shows you, I think, how this is governed by individual personalities in the academy. As much as this is sort of an organization-wide change, some branches weren't that dramatic. Looking at the executive branch, it didn't seem that wildly different who they invited. Right. So it's interesting to look at just how sort of specific this is.
1: So you mentioned personalities. How much of this do you think is driven by the Academy's president, Cheryl Boone Isaacs? And and do you think there's a concern that this whole effort might lose steam after she leaves her post because this is her last year?
0: Uh, Well, it's interesting. Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who is the first African-American woman to lead the Academy, has been hugely important symbolically as the face of the Academy at this time. But the drive to diversify is actually the product of a lot of different people in leadership at the organization. Don Hudson, the CEO of the Academy, has been pushing it. The board is 51 people. That's a lot. And they voted unanimously for these new rules. So while Cheryl has been the one out front, it's been a lot of people who've been pushing this board, And I don't think it'll go away when Cheryl leaves as president.
1: Let, let me ask you this slightly delicate question. You know, for, for the Academy to bring in this many new members with this much diversity, is there any concern that they've kind of cleared the ground now and that they're, they're going to have a difficult time finding 683-ish uh, people in the next few years that are going to be this diverse?
0: Well yeah, I mean there I think the issue is they found a lot of the people who had been for one reason or another not invited over the years who probably should have, actors, directors who had somehow slipped through the cracks or not been part of the right social circle. So they found the easy people. They found the kind of low-hanging fruit. Next year it's probably going to get harder and the year after that it's going to get harder still. Interesting thing is you know, there are some people who are worried about the Academy sort of lowering their standards uh, or sort of <laughs> ignoring their history of inviting these sort of elite members. The truth is, if you really look at who has been invited to the Academy under what we in our newsroom affectionately call the friends and family plan that really predominated in the 70s and 80s, there are a lot of people who would not be considered... Kind of elite members of the film world. A lot of people with mostly TV credits or few credits at all. So the notion that they would potentially be lowering a standard suggests that there was one in place to begin with. Well,
1: and let's talk a little bit more about that because you and I discussed this recently. And and you told me something I never knew, which is that Gregory Peck, as president of the Academy, was the guy who kind of came in and cleaned up some of that and said, look, we can't just have you invite your loser friends into the Academy. We have to have some standards for, uh, for who gets to vote on this thing.
0: Right. Well, and it's interesting. Gregory Peck was president of the Academy at a really interesting time in Hollywood when the studio system... Was uh, really gone, and there were this new guard of filmmakers coming in in the seventies, and the Academy really reflected the old Hollywood, and their taste reflected the old Hollywood. That's how you see certain movies get nominated that just kind of make you scratch your head. Gregory Peck sent kind of sternly worded letters to the members, advising them that they were going to have to evolve uh, and grow with the times, and they were going to have to invite some of these new young filmmakers to be part of their club. It kind of mirrors... That was a generational issue, but it kind of mirrors the issue the Academy is in now when it's looking at being more inclusive in terms of race and gender.
1: Right. And well, and do you think some of the people... I mean, some of the criticism of all this that's happening in a muted form is probably just racism and sexism, but some of it is also a kind of clinging to an idea of what an Oscar movie is. And that idea presumably changes a little bit when you invite... The Wayan Brothers and and Ice Cube, totally separate from, from race, but these are folks who make movies that are not traditionally Oscar movies, even if Straight Outta Compton did get nominated last year.
0: Right. I mean, it, that phrase, Oscar movie, is kind of a loaded one. I mean, for a lot of people, it means a certain kind of movie where people are speaking in British accents and they're wearing corsets and there's some sort of <laughs> adversity to be overcome. It's your king's speech. Type film, but in many ways, there are a lot of parallels between Straight Out of Compton and those and that film. Uh, you have people sort of rising from adversity and dealing with a major kind of social upheaval. So, to your point, what makes something an Oscar film is is not really what accent people are speaking in, or what kind of clothes they're wearing. It's, does it deal with major issues? Does it feature great performances? Is it well-crafted? Comedies, for one reason or another, have been excluded largely from that process. It'll be interesting to see if some of the people who are just invited, like, say, The Wayans, who you mentioned, or Tina Fey, will change that kind of snooty attitude the Academy has toward comedies
1: and and so let's now talk about the other issue which is a little less loaded and kind of funnier to me which is the the party scene the party circuit of award season which you and I have both partaken of on on different coasts and and so what are these new rules that the academy is is pronouncing now to try to cut down on the amount on the appearance of undue influence of of partying and favors and free lunches and drinks
0: Right, well every few years the academy tries to crack down on the sort of cottage industry of award season, the the over the top parties and the sort of excessive what they perceive as excessive campaigning. This year they've passed a rule that says academy members can't attend events that quote re- can be reasonably perceived to unduly influence members. As incredibly broad and subject to interpretation, it will be interesting to see if it has any impact on the season. My understanding from talking to some folks is that this was in some part a reaction to that New York Times profile of Peggy Siegel that ran in connection with her work on The Revenant and some other films. Um, some sort of over the top what they what the academy perceived as over the top parties that she that she threw Really, there's a long tradition of these kind of events, and and some years they're bigger, and some years they're smaller. Uh, but the Revenant came. What I be. find
1: kind of funny about that, if that's true, which I don't d- doubt that it's entirely possible, is you know, it's not that it's not as if the Academy didn't know everything that Peggy Siegel was up to. So the issue is just that right. she put her head above the parapet, and you know basically was honest about it in the paper of record and now they're embarrassed by it and so they're trying to it it seems a little bit of a fig leaf solution to me especially given how easy it is to kind of define those words any way you want unduly influence and all the rest of it
0: i agree and and i think sometimes too there's sour grapes like hey i've been throwing fabulous parties and running awards campaigns and why am i not getting a nice you know glitzy profile in right. the new york times <laughs> um but but the truth is i mean there is this whole industry of everybody from caterers to you know dry bar who who benefits from award season and these industries don't necessarily have anything to do with film and these events do give an advantage to studios that have a larger budget to promote their movies which raises a question of fairness um, I don't know how you really get rid of these events. I, I, I My understanding is that the Academy will ask people to sort of get them approved in advance. So you send a guest list, you send a menu, but then, I mean, are they going to look at the menu and say, well, you've got lobster and caviar on there, take that off and the event's okay. I mean, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a little hard to see. I mean, at some level you just and you could put the genie back in the bottle, but it would be a whole lot less fun all around if you did. And I, I don't know. To me, it's kind of like this feels like a – I mean, look, you don't want to just totally embrace it and say, yes, we have this sort of insane culture where anybody who wants to win an Oscar has to spend $100,000 on an event thrown by one of these five people. But it does seem pretty complicated how how you would actually effectively police any of that or stop it. But I guess it'll be interesting to see them uh, try to do that without actually, you know, putting all these other people out of work.
0: I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if there were fewer of these events. There is usually a point somewhere in January where I'm like, if I have to spend another Sunday in Spanx, I'm yeah. just not going to make it. You know, I mean, they're just, they're, they're, there's just the baton death march quality to them. Yeah. So if this has the effect of maybe making people a little more selective about them, it probably wouldn't be the worst yeah. thing in the
1: world. Well, what do you think the, inf- the influence is on Oscar voters. Do you Have you talked to any Oscar voters about the events and how it affects them? My sense from, from really mostly going to them and, and talking to Peggy about it, we had her as a guest on the show, is that, you know, they really want the voters to be able to see the movie on a big screen as intended. And they usually want to give them a chance to sort of be in the room with them and and ask their questions and just have a personal connection, feel a personal connection to the film, which I guess is, uh, you know, a, a bit of an unfair advantage. if If you've gotten to have lunch with Angelina Jolie and you didn't get to have lunch with some other big star, you might feel like you'd rather vote for Angelina Jolie.
0: Right. I mean, when you ask Academy members, they say it makes no impact. But then, in the next breath, they're talking about what a charming guy, Leonardo DiCaprio, is. Uh, And so, I I don't think consciously people say, well, there was that great luncheon. But I think, unconsciously, when you're at an event to celebrate a certain film, and everybody there is talking about how great it is, it inevitably just kind of seeps into your perception of the movie. So. I mean, I, I don't think... I, there are examples, however, of this backfiring. I mean, last season, Lady Gaga did everything a human being could possibly do to win an Oscar. She performed her song umpteen times in, in various forums, and it almost seemed like she was so thirsty that it ticked the Academy off, and, and she didn't end up winning to the surprise of many people, including yeah, me.
1: Yeah, and, and And can you tell us a little bit about past efforts to... To police this, and whether they 've had any success,
0: yeah, well, there have been efforts in the past to keep people from attending these kind of events specifically during the nominations period, and this in the past, this had the effect of just pushing them all to a little earlier, so there were a lot of them in November and December rather than the period where people are actively voting. Right. What's interesting about the new rules is the academy's basically saying this applies all year round. I don't, I, I, I can't imagine how you can enforce that. I mean, there's, for instance, I think next week there's a luncheon on behalf of the OJ doc, which is apparently acceptable according to the new rules. There are things that happen year-round, whether they're at Cannes or at Sundance. Right. Do, you say that, do you say that a particular party is meant to influence Academy members? Are they not allowed to go? Right. Well, what, um, if you, what if
1: you have a Golden Globes party and there happens to be a dozen Academy members there? Is that falling under these rules or is that just a party that they got invited to? You know, it's, uh, right. there's a lot of gray areas. Well, it'll be fun to see what happens. And fun to watch people who are accustomed to being invited to a lot of lunches get invited to fewer lunches, or something like that. <laughs> However, will they live? <laughs> they may starve. A few of them may starve. They might. Although I think a lot of those people may have been stripped of their voting rights in the last rule change.
0: Right, or maybe they'll be happy to not have to pass the bread basket.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's entirely possible. The Spanks, the the anti-Spanks <laughs> brigade, will score a rare victory. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. And uh, good luck with, uh, with even though it's not award season, covering award season anyway.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Take care. <laughs> Bye. I got something for this beat. Hey, yo, yellow cutter. cut it. What is it looking like, Dre? It's hard? Yo. Hell yeah, kill. Yeah. It's going to start some shit, but this is what we need. So
1: Richard, the night of yeah, you've seen
2: the whole thing? Well, here's here's um you know, I'm I'm very lucky to have seen seven of the eight episodes. Okay. And I never do this, but I was so engrossed by this that I emailed our HBO publicity contacts and I wrote this long email explaining why, you know, when I reviewed Orange is New Black, I had the whole season and it really helped shape my view of the show yeah. and all this stuff. Because I just really wanted to see how it ends. Yeah. And they were very nice about it, but they were like, absolutely no one is seeing the eighth episode. Yeah. We're not sending it to anybody, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I... Watched... But that's
1: a good sign, A, that you are that mm-hmm. excited, and B, that they've got something good enough to hold back.
2: Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, it. this is a show that was co-created by the director Steven Zalian and the writer Richard Price. Richard Price, people might know, um, he wrote the book *Clockers* that the Spike Lee made a movie about, mm-hmm. uh, based on, and he wrote this beautiful novel called *Lush Life*. And I think *Lush Life* in is amazing. Yeah, about the lower East Side mm-hmm. and class and gentrification and crime. So it's these two, and, and he, oh, Richard Price, um, kind of more germane to to HBO, wrote ten episodes of *The Wire*. Right. So he's got this really great. Um, he writes crime stories, but they're sort of um, panoramic in scope and, and they're sociological. And, and so this is, um, I'm kind of, when people ask me to describe The Night Of, which premieres on Sunday, uh, on the July 10th, I kind of say it's like a Law and Order episode told in eight parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, sort of less on the kind of snappy, you know, uh, Jerry Orbach one-liners and mm-hmm. more on the kind of like grittiness of New York. But it's not like overdone. It's it's really like a, a a very thoughtful kind of interesting look at at how a crime kind of goes through the the process of you know the investigation, the arrest, the the trial. You know,
1: okay, yeah. that that helps make sense of this somewhat perplexing promotional stuff they've yeah, been doing, yeah. where you never really know what the hell is going What's on in going any of on. these promos. Yeah,
2: and you know it it the, I, the promos um you know no 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 offense to the HBO marketing department, the promos make it seem like this kind of like you know, like dirge, like lugubrious kind of, yeah, uh-huh. kind of thing. And it, it has that. I mean, it's very, the, the whole palette is very dark and, and there are kind of slower, more contemplative moments. But really, I mean, this is a, it's a very engaging, swift movie. So basically just kind of without spoiling anything, Reza Ahmed, who's this great actor who was in Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal and he's in the um, mm. next, the mm-hmm. upcoming Rogue, Rogue Squadron, the Star Wars movie. He plays this young kid who basically, without asking, borrows his dad's taxi cab. He lives in Queens, drives into into Manhattan to, to try to go to a party and ends up picking this girl up who thinks he's a cabbie. And then things happen, and then the next morning she's dead. And Mm -hmm. so he gets arrested for this crime. We don't actually know if he did it or not. We kind of assume he didn't. Seems like a nice kid. And then it basically just follows um, him being arrested, processed. Um, he gets a lawyer played by John Turturro in what I think is you know, when, when we're talking Emmy eligibility for next next year, because unfortunately this show premiered too late. Oh, okay. He is I mean, he's like people versus O.J. Simpson level of like Sarah Paulson good. Like he's oh, just, really? okay. he's, it's a great performance and he has these weird, he has like eczema on his feet so he's always wearing like sandals and scratching his feet and it's this kind of like <laughs> mannered, weird little performance, but he's great. Um, yeah, so we basically just watched this poor kid go through the system from, you know, being in the tombs to going to Rikers and and Michael K. Williams a wire veteran who played Omar um, he uh, is the kind of I don't know uh, leader of of this this one cell block basically at at Rikers and so he kind of the, the kid kind of moves his way around him and figures out allegiances and stuff so it becomes kind of a prison drama while on the outside it's still this legal drama about how to you know about the prosecution kind of railroading him and the defense working very hard with very little money to yeah. um, get a fair trial. Um, so it's a really compelling
1: show. Um, so it's kind of like Law and Order Meets the Wire, to let that sort Law of Order panoramic wire, wire mm-hmm. thing of like, here's our disease society and all of its aspects. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I
2: would say so. I think it, it's probably because um, Steve Zalian, um, who's a great you know writer unto himself, he, he wrote some of the episodes here or co-wrote, but he's a little bit more of a sort of traditional movie dramatist. So right. it, it it has, it's you know, there are some soapier moments if we want to call them soapy, but they're not mm-hmm. really. But, uh, you know, it, but yes, it is this kind of sociological panoramic look at things, but it's also incredibly entertaining. And yeah. so, you know, like I said, I feverishly emailed the HBO people <laughs> and they said no. So now I have to wait till the end of August to see how this thing ends. But, you know, normally when I'm watching a show to write about, you know, I'll I'll watch a couple episodes and then maybe if I feel like I need to watch more, I will. But, it, you know, oftentimes it feels like work. Yeah. In this case, I was just I was up all night just watching. Where did this know. happen, this seven-hour um, binge watch? This happened in my bedroom in the East Village. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> just a computer on my lap. Uh-huh. Uh, just uh-huh. kind of being like, whoa, this is really, really good. So, wow. Um, I was pleasantly surprised because those promos hadn't really done much for me. Um,
1: Do you think this will be a big show of the ty- type that yeah. HBO kind of could use right, yeah. right
2: now? I mean, the way that this show has been... Sort of described by a lot of other TV writers, like TV critics and stuff, is that this is the kind of corrective to True Detective season two. Right. So this yeah. is you know it's it's not it, does, it lacks you know the kind of obvious star power of of Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, yeah. but it has that kind of propulsive hooky. It grabs you, kind of you know, it, and while it also kind of makes you think, like it's it it serves both functions well in the in the same way that the first season of True Detective did, and then the second season didn't. And you know, I think HBO is trying to find. They want this serialized kind of anthologized crime thing, and this right. might be it versus True Detective.
1: And and we don't know yet if they intend to do a second season no. with these same characters, or whether they'd reboot right. the whole thing. Right. I think that they're. I mean, I'm. My guess is that they're waiting to see. But you know, w- I wonder if they may cut the finale differently depending on how they decide to I go. Mean, possible based on yeah, ratings and stuff. That's certainly
2: possible. Mm. I, I think that, you know, I've, I've already seen <clears throat> some people like on Twitter and stuff um, who've seen the episodes um, kind of banging the drum for the show. And actually, yeah. I think the first episode is already up on HBO Go. Um, oh, okay. All right. And good. people are re- seem, really seem to like it. So I, I think despite the, the sort of lack of, you know, big-name big stars, I think that, you know, in a kind of otherwise somewhat fallow summer TV season, other than like Unreal and a couple other things, this could really make a dent um and 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 get a lot of people if if they just will hook into that first episode yeah. which I think if they watch it they they'll they'll be as I was immediately kind of on board.
1: Well I love some John Turturro man. Takes oh, me so back good. to do the right thing in a yeah. year where we're talking a lot mm-hmm. about do the right thing. Yeah. He
2: was and, amazing in that and he's great in this and it's and it's a really um it's a performance that's not pandering but it's so likable and empathetic and it's just it's a really special role and, and he does it incredibly well so I'm, I'm i would urge everyone to watch the show what's your name son
1: not where she says she wanted to go the beach the what the beach So, Richard, you heard our conversation with Rebecca Keegan talking about the changes in uh, the Academy voting membership and mm-hmm. this long-term goal of getting to – of doubling uh, female minority representation by 2020. And it does make you think that if the Academy had been less male and less white you know, over the past 20 years – would that have affected any of the decisions that have been made? Would right. would different people have gone home with uh, statuettes? And, you know, obviously this is a parlor game, and obviously Richard and I are both white guys, so that also hurts this whole thing. But anyway, we're just going to make a little foray mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. about this because it's very interesting. The, two, the films that came out in 2009, if you look at Best Actress, Sandra Bullock won for The Blind Side, which I think in 2016— there may be a little yeah. bit of problematicness about this film. Yeah. Uh, it is a movie that is, in some ways, about race. So you know, yeah, yeah, uh, but
2: not very well. <laughs>
1: but but also, by the way, like a wonderful book by Michael Lewis, our own Michael Lewis, mm-hmm. and and a true story. So yeah. you know, it yeah. may be a problematic true story, but it, it happened. Is what it, is. it was yeah. real. Yeah. Helen Mirren for the Last Station, Carrie Mulligan for an Education. Gabaret Sidibe for Precious, which was a very exciting nomination, I think, when yeah. it happened. Yeah. And Meryl Streep for Julie and Julia playing Julia Child, yeah. as you recall.
2: You know, I think that Meryl and Hel- Helen on this list, great actresses both, obviously. Um. And I haven't seen The Last Station. I don't really know that anyone has, frankly. I mean, obviously, they nominated her for it. But, you know, they're great actresses. I think these were kind of like... Here are your nominations. Like They were very right. sort of like perfunctory kind of nominations. Please
1: come. We love you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, as
2: good as Ju- um, Meryl Streep is in, as Julia Child, I mean, that's a great performance in a kind of okay movie. It, the movie really should just be called Julia because the whole julie plotline is not.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, probably worked care. better for the book than the movie <laughs> right. when you think about it's it. It's like, why she are we watching this? She was pretty wonderful, like, though, as yeah. Julia Child. And yeah. to actually pull off a... A successful moving performance while doing mm-hmm. that much of a crazy caricature yeah. impersonation.
2: Yeah, she makes it human somehow. And I think yeah, a, a lesser actress might just play the caricature and yeah, and yeah. lose the the person. Yeah, so it's a good performance, and mm-hmm. you know, I think it was it was well deserved. Um, I'm assuming that Helen Mirren. I think she plays Tolstoy's wife in that in The Last Station. I'm sure she's great, but I don't know. Yeah. So I would say, really, though, the other three are the kind of ones to, to talk about here. Yeah. Um, obviously, Bullock won, and this was kind of. Not It was kind of at the start of her resurgence. You know, she's had a yeah. couple kind of dips in her career and then has come back. Um, the Sandrasants. The Sandrasants, you know, and I think that that was a lot of what propelled her to the win, mm-hmm. know, is that people mm-hmm. were just like, oh, we really like you, and, you know, I think she's well-liked in the community, and she seems like a smart, kind of just fun person. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think that helped a lot. It's a good performance in a, in a movie that I think airs to the side of Shemal, you know, on, yeah. on some occasions. You know, and it's... There's not a lot of um, complexity. I mean, she plays this kind of tough Texas woman who, you know, takes no guff from her friends and learns to to f- live and, you know, feel in a different way from um, this, you know, black kid that she takes in right. kind of off the
1: street. It's a little bit – reminds me a little bit of uh, Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich, but like mm-hmm. softer. Yes, not as no. No, She's not as much of a hard ass. She's a kind yeah. of a regular Texan gal mm-hmm. who – finds herself in this strange situation and rises to it. Strange being that she's looking after this young black guy who is actually an incredibly talented football player yeah. but naturally talented and has not been trained at all and so they have to kind of help him get the training that he needs so that he can become an elite NFL player which he did in real life yes yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it is
2: I think that that's the perfect analog is is Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich it, it was that kind of win too mm-hmm. it was like you've been America's sweetheart for so long you haven't quite had the sort of serious cred
0: conferred right.
2: upon you even though Julia Roberts had been nominated twice before yeah when she won here's, you showed a little this. grit yeah, you, here you yeah. go. Good job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I can get behind that kind of win. Honestly, yeah. like, I, I think that's. I, I think that we shouldn't be purists about who we give Oscars to. In terms of like, yes, we can give a, a career Oscar to somebody. That's fine. Like I, mm-hmm. and, but I think that the you know the other two performances, Carrie Mulligan and, and Gabriel Sidibe these were two actresses who really kind of came out of nowhere, especially Sidibe. Carrie Mulligan had been in a couple things, but yeah. but, but An Education was her big lead kind of de- Hello World kind of debut. Yes. Whereas Sidibe had literally never been in anything before, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was a movie, the rare kind of Sundance thing that rode that wave the whole way to, to the Oscars. And I don't know, I think that you're right, Mike, that if the voting body was different, you know, just seven years later as it is now, I think that she might have won Sidibe. And I think that I would i I of these five I kind of would like to see have like to have seen her win the most, yeah, um, yeah, just because it's such a performance in that movie it is you know, and she's you know she's worked steadily since I don't think she hasn't done anything nearly as exciting as precious, right. but but she's so good in that movie and it's such a pure kind of tactile textural raw performance in a way that you don't Really see a lot from actresses or actors who um, are kind of mannered in their head about things. You know, she's just—it's kind of all on the on screen,
1: yeah—in this really exciting way. I do think that that part of it. It'll be interesting to see if this changes. It, typically, the Academy has been. Well, I don't know about this. I was going to say, typically, the Academy wants people to pay some dues before they hand them an Oscar. Yeah. And, you know, your first one is kind of, your first nomination is sort of like, hey, the nomination is the prize. Right. Keep going. No, to the club now, you know. But for Best Actress, actually, that's often not the case. It's for Best Actress, it's often an ingenue out of mm-hmm. nowhere who blows mm-hmm. everybody's minds. Yeah, Like Alicia Vikander, although I guess that was um, supporting. But still, supporting. Yeah, same
2: thing. Or Marion Cotillard. Right. You know, she'd been yeah. working in France obviously, but like they were like, Oh, here here's this award, no one in America has heard of you. Right. Like, no one in America probably had seen that movie. Yeah. So it certainly happens, you know, and I think that Citabay got kind of caught up in Bullock's ear. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And maybe if it had been a different year, maybe if it had been a different voting body, things would have gone another way. And I think that yeah, there is precedent for an ingenue kind of win. There's not precedent for someone who looks like Gabriel Citabe in yeah. that sort of ingenue.
1: You well know, I think that was role. that was what was so exciting about yeah. the entire thing is yeah. is that we're so accustomed to, you know, size zero ingenues mm-hmm. coming along and, and claiming that statue and, and to even you know, frankly it was sort of radical to even have her in the conversation, which yeah. is a good thing. But yeah. but it's interesting to think just how radical might a more diverse, younger, more kind of even activist voting membership. Mm-hmm be willing to go you know because that's in some ways what they're hoping to to create here i think is to is to inject new life into this body and not have it just be oh we you know affix a stamp of approval on you at the end of your days unless you're a hot young girl in which case we just hand you an award right you know it's interesting to see them pushing up against that basically mm-hmm. mentality or, or uh, stereotype.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, we should mention um, that Monique, uh, um, Gabrielle Cidabé's co-star, did win an Oscar for Precious. Yeah. So, uh, but I think that a lot of that was like, oh, well, sh- she kind of carries the this whole movie. Like, we we like this movie. We're nominated for things, but like we're only going to give it this one award. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of thinking maybe wouldn't happen now. Hopefully, it mm-hmm. wouldn't happen now with these changes. Is that like?
1: Well, it smacks a little bit of tokenism. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and 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 I think that that happens with movies in general, not just uh, in connection with race or gender course, stuff, yeah. but. But it would be it's interesting to think, will a, a future voting body be less interested in doing that, less mm-hmm. comfortable doing that?
2: Yeah. You know, and I think um, we'll have a, a, a really easy kind of first test of it this year with The Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a movie that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, you know, first when I saw it at Sundance, it's not a great you know movie honestly <laughs> um it, it's a really passionate well done movie but it's not you know it's not at the level of certain other you know best picture oscar nominees right i, I but like there is something that's so profoundly you know rich there that I, I will be curious to see where the academy goes with that movie because it it could it could be the kind of thing where like selma for example that got like two nominations, but one of them was Best Picture. Yes. You know, the rare sort of Best yeah. Picture nominee. They got very few other nominations. It could go that way, or it could get a lot of the sort of below-the-line things. I don't know. But yeah. I, I think that uh, I would have to imagine that this kind of diversified, or you know, as as it you know moves towards 2020, this ever-diversifying group of people will hopefully seek out stuff that the Academy wouldn't have seven years ago.
1: Well, and they might even challenge our own ideas about what is a great movie, right? I hope so. That's what's interesting yeah. is is there's this tension between the kind of technical, you know, the movie either succeeds or it doesn't on its own terms. Mm-hmm. And let's leave aside all the political questions and this idea of representation and of activism. But also, I I suspect that some of the kind of seemingly technical stuff has its own political stuff baked into it oh, that sure. we don't, you know, we don't recognize. So it'll be it'll be an interesting. Uh, It'll be an interesting few years. Yeah, and you know we're 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 headed into the we're headed into the storm,
2: so to speak. I mean, you know, we're we're about a few weeks away from Toronto announcing its lineup and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So we'll see. I hope that I really hope that the Birth of a Nation isn't just the one. You know, I hope that there's more. I I, I, maybe the fences movie that Denzel Washington directed, or maybe something else. I don't know, because I'm really excited to to see this Academy stretch its legs now. You know, and 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 try to figure things out um in in an active kind of transparent, visible way. You know, because I I think it can only get better, right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
2: Let's hope.
0: First, I would like to thank the Academy for showing that it can be about the performance and not the politics. I want to thank Miss Hattie McDaniel for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey, because you touched it. The whole world saw it. Ricky Anderson, our attorney of Anderson and Smith, thank you for your hard work. My entire BET family, my precious family, thank you so much. To my amazing husband, Sidney, thank you for showing me that sometimes you have to forego doing what's popular in order to do what's right. And baby, you were so right. God
1: bless us all. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. That really helps us find new listeners. You can find us all writing about word season and other matters at VanityFair.com. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Mike underscore Hogan and Richard Rylas. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman. And edited by Tim Einenkell. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for best advice to a young mother goes to Richard Lawson. There are some soapier moments...